Welcome to the Limitless, the podcast between this week, Kate, Kate Ledegar uh, is talking to Michelle Horsley with uh, me, Jason Horsley, somewhere in the mix. What I respect, you just can't see. Well, who starts here? I, I think you do, Kate. <laughs> 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 Pressure. Sure. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I guess I could start by saying how nice it is to be connected with both of you although we've never met each other in person, I've only ever seen you on the screen. And I now I have one artifact from you, Michelle, in the form of a postcard, which probably contains some vague traces of skin cells or something mm. like that. And, uh, it, and it's just, it's just pretty, both strange and interesting to have um, to have connections like this, where where the only um, and on the one sense it is deep and profound, on the other sense it's a screen, you know, and or a um, hold on, honey bun, I'm on I'm on a Zoom call, or a. Uh, you know, it's voices. We're voices to each other. Mm. And you should have an artifact of me too, Kate. I believe. I do have an artifact of you, and so that's Jason's book. And, and I have an artifact of Kate because I got a postcard from Florida. That's right. <laughs> and in Jason's book, uh, a page that I use as a bookmark, which is a. I assume notes torn out of your notes for the book. So it's a, it's a wonderful handwritten, um, handwritten page. I don't know what's on it because it was quite random. Although I did look before I put my page in, but you, you would have to try and decipher the handwriting yeah. and then determine what yeah. book it was notes from, if, if any. So what, but is it about 16 maps of hell? Is That's what I don't know. That's what I don't know. You'd have to so, um, deduce yeah. that. And I haven't completely deciphered it yet because it is, it takes deciphering. I um, had a professor once that sent me notes and I looked at it at first and I thought, I can't, I can't read this. I, this is two pages of cursive and I can't read any of it. But then I started reading it, and as I looked and looked, it was it was a transformation, something that was completely foreign and illegible started forming into words. And that process was very satisfying and interesting as well. So I imagine if I give it a real try, Jason, I would, I would hope that it would do something similar. And I will, I will someday. I just haven't, uh, I just haven't gotten there quite yet. 
That reminds me or makes me think of how babies must learn to understand language. It just starts out as noise and gradually becomes oh, coherent. That's, that's me in Spain. That's you. Is it, Michelle, do you have any uh, Spanish at all to start with? Yoega. <laughs> I just learned the word for female horse for mare. Yoega. That comes in. Um, I can say gracias, and uh, uh, I can't even say hasta luego because the way they say it here is like hasta luego, and they contract it to the point where I can't really quite say it. So no, I'm I'm completely. I can I'm learning to understand some things, but I can't speak it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'll that's mm -hmm. that is brave of you to jump in like that but in a way it's probably in terms of authentic learning that's probably always how it's done just by being there and hearing it and having it um identifying it in the situations where it's being used rather than from a book or from a learning platform i would guess that it will come more quickly to you just uh, on site like that another yeah one. I don't know I'm, I, I don't know I'm gonna find out <laughs> Jason uh you, you I think I don't know unless you were in the background there you missed the pre-recorded version which I want to share if Michelle doesn't mind me sharing about oh, our, yeah. uh, <laughs> I just told Michelle that I was late um well, first of all, because I'd, I got the day confused, but also I came home just now because I just had got my fake pop in tooth from the dentist right, right over here. And Michelle was one two days ago, her very oh. first and only mm -hmm. one. I thought that was pretty interesting. We both have our going to town teeth now. Right. Well, there's more because I just said to myself, if Kate doesn't show up soon, I'm off to my dentist uh, to see my dentist because uh, I'm waiting to get my first ever crown stuck in. But oh. my bite is so tight, whatever, that she's had to troubleshoot it time and time again. And now she has to put some special mold in to uh, finish that job. See, I've been waiting weeks to get my... Uh, so we're, so we're synchronizing on our um, cracking, <laughs> failing teeth. But, you know, I have interesting information from my dentist. And because um, we were talking about uh, tooth grinding and how he was saying that my cracked tooth could be attributable to clenching and grinding teeth at night. And it... Um, it emerged that in the past year, dentists have, uh, there have been something like a sevenfold rise in, according to him, I don't know where this information comes from. This is the dentist, seven times as many cracked teeth this in this past year since, you know, mm, lockdown time and everything. And um, I just thought, how interesting so you talk about you talk about side effects collateral damage and the rest of it that is um 
you would not necessarily factor in. You know, and my my mouth is falling apart, right? Because maybe at night my teeth are being held that much tighter. And so all the little cracks and weak points where there's a cav where there was a filled cavity are getting that much more stressed. You know, and yes, seven times as many people are having their teeth crack, attributable very often to nighttime tooth grinding and jaw clenching. So, you know, just want to add one more big old log to that fire mm -hmm. of trouble. It is, yeah. So I also got a, a mouth guard too. That was the other part of my um, So you're, you're protecting your teeth at night. Yeah, it's not, I don't really like the idea of having to wear one and put one in, but I, I, I had that one cracked tooth had to be removed and then a second one that had to be crowned. And this mm. was in the past three months. So as little as I might like um, a mouth guard, I really don't want any more of my teeth to crack. So anyway, but yeah, blame the lockdown measures. That's what I'll do. Just another little, little, ah, I don't know, a little problem, another little problem there to add to the problem pile. Is it fair? Is it fair that I blame it on that? Fair enough, I guess. Um, you probably haven't heard the, the Gabor Mate story. Um, so he was born in a Jewish ghetto in an Eastern European country just before the Nazis invaded. And he wouldn't stop crying. So his mother had the doctor come and look at him. And the doctor said, well, all the babies are crying in the ghetto. So there's nothing wrong with him. Like all the babies are crying. Um, and Gabor Mate attributes that to the mothers being so stressed, knowing that this the invasion was coming. There might even be an intuitive aspect to it. So, yeah. Real. But, when, but when all the babies are crying, your particular baby isn't, your particular baby is normal. When That's all right. the, when all the teeth are cracking, your track, your cracked teeth are normal because it's not something special to your own individual self. It's, it's just how things are now. Yeah. Just how things are now. Sobering. It's a sobering thought. Mm -hmm. I was, um, I had another uh, communication with my, with my journalist relative, another follow-up. Um, you know, they've published me, Kate. Who's published you? Well, I, I'm taking, I take it you don't want to name them. If it's this is going to be public, but yeah, they have. Really? Yeah, I review uh, Jonathan Leeson review. I think it was. Oh, really? Interesting. Well, I anyway. So, yeah. yeah, I just just from a you know family connection. I don't think it's essential to say um, the publication that the relative works for, but um, you know it, it's. 
I think I, I'm really finding the the disagreement. So many people, including this person, say, you know, this this is your experts versus my experts. Right. And then it's a matter of belief in your experts versus my experts. And I think I think that's a cop out. I think it's a cop out because it's um you know, on the one hand, I think the majority of people, their experts are authority. They're the authority experts, the official experts. And then the experts, my experts, would be considered the non-authority experts. And so it just wouldn't be listened to. But even though that their, their um career qualifications are the same. They, they occupy the same level of research and expertise, but they're not authorities. So it comes down to listening to authority versus um, yeah, perhaps just more of a tendency to question authority um, or you know, in many cases being actively distrustful of authority. So I was, I think it's important to kind of pare, pare things down, peel away the parts that are speculative and very controversial. And I thought, okay, once we remove that, you know, what, what, what's really bothering me here? What's really, what do I find really troubling about what people are rejecting? And and what, what I came up with was um, I, I look at the data. The, in America, we have a vaccine injury reporting system called VAERS, the Vaccine Averse Events Reporting System. Um, that itself has a whole history. I won't go into right now. So there's problems with that. However, it is what we have. And the adverse events that are reported have to be reported by an official entity, like a doctor or health office. And so um, according to the VAERS, VAERS reported events for the past, um, you know, since the coronavirus vaccines have started to be used, there have been um, over now in the United States reported over 5,000 deaths associated with the vaccines. Now, it's important to remember that not every one of these deaths will be determined to be due to causation, but it will be determined it's just correlation, right? So um, not every one of those 5,000 deaths is going to be determined to be um, because of the vaccine. However, Parallel to this, a study by um, a, a, a uh, healthcare entity called Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare that's centered in Cambridge or Boston, they um, did a report in 2010 or 2012, I believe, that studied how many adverse events that actually happen in medical offices are ever reported. And so Harvard Pilgrim determined, this report from Harvard Pilgrim determined that between 1% and 12% of events 
that are recorded in doctor's offices, not just anecdotally happening. This is that, you know, are coming onto the radar of doctor's offices. Between one and 12% of those make it onto VAERS. So even if you say, you know, of those 5,000 deaths, you know, maybe half of them were really due to the vaccine, or even a third of them, you still have to multiply that by at least a factor of nearly 10, right? So you're getting in the tens of thousands of deaths now that are attributable, directly caused by the COVID vaccines. Even if you just decided to take it at face value and say, all right, well, we're going to say that it's just been a little over 5,000 deaths attributable to the vaccines. Um, you still have something that is vastly out of proportion to what it has taken in the past to remove any other drug from the market. And I just learned that in the 70s uh, with the swine flu scare, they rushed a vaccine to the market similarly. And after 50 reported deaths, they took the vaccine off the market. So we now have over 5,000 reported deaths. And not only is the vaccine not being taken off the market, there's no reportage of this in mainstream publications. It, this is ignored. And this to me, no matter whether you think that the coronavirus is a dangerous health, uh, health event that really needs to be dealt with in one way or another, regardless of how you feel about that, you don't ignore 5,000 plus reported deaths after vaccination. And it is, and that's what's happening. And this, this I ask, when is the tipping point? You know, Fauci just got to his tipping point, apparently, and the, all the things that were considered wild conspiracy theory, and Fauci, who is considered the go-to authority, are now being questioned. When is the tipping point for people dying? from and after these vaccines, when it will start to hit the mainstream media? Um, just from, from my perspective, a couple of things, Kate, is one is we're off the map. So the usual rules don't apply, right? We've entered, we'd, we've entered, um, well, you could say it's a coup where the people who have the most power in the world are collaborating together to recreate the world in a new way. We don't, I, I mean, personally, I think it's an energy crisis, but we know that they're doing something that's extraordinary uh, beyond our experience. <laughs> so, so, so it doesn't really help to say like, except to acknowledge that we're off the map. So the usual rules don't apply. I don't see any way to get them to 
comply with the rules, the old rules now, because they're they've they're working to a plan. It looks like to me, uh, and they they have no intention of going back to a normal way of organizing the world. Um, and the other thing about the Fauci emails is because um, that's what you were referring to that all of these Fauci emails have been released that show that. He was funding the lab in Wuhan and the virus probably came from Wuhan and he was lying about what was said and blah, blah, blah. So I just see this as a rollout for the next stage, which will be, oh, the virus came from a lab. It's got gain of function, genetic uh, manipulation in there. It's more dangerous than we thought. We have to lock down now. I just saw, um, just briefly, because I don't, I'm not following it that closely, but in the UK, they're reporting that gangrene and um, some other weird, like you would think unrelated disease, is they're considering that now um, um, symptoms of the, the Indian variant. So, so they're fear-mongering in the UK like crazy. This Indian variant is so, um, very virulent and dangerous. It causes gangrene and some other terrible similar um, outcome, right? So, so yeah, I don't think we can trust, I don't think we can rein it in in the old ways that we would have reined in just by um, well, relying on mainstream media to do proper reporting or to push back or to make governments responsive. I do think like in, in, if it is, if I'm right and it's an energy crisis, you can imagine the board of, of Facebook or or Google or any government office being having like the meet the De Davos meeting with the World Economic Forum guys. And they're like they lay it out like we only have ten years worth of oil and gas left if we keep using it this way, but. If we can get people to reduce their consumption and get them to stay home and restructure the economy, then we've got a hundred years, and in that hundred years, we can develop a new energy technology. Basically, everybody's going to go like, "Holy crap! Yeah, okay, we'll do whatever it takes." Right? Like, I'm sure that's happening behind the scenes, something like that, because just everybody's on board, except for the little people. And and about the the dangers of the COVID. When, it, when the pandemic was first announced last March, we were running our thrift store. And uh, I I can't remember where I first heard about it, but I was I became aware of it early from somebody online. And uh, I was like, holy crap, this might be it. And I even saw the link to China and what they're doing with China, like the video footage of people collapsing on the street and then like sealing people into their apartments and that sort of stuff. I thought, holy crap, this, this could be really bad. And so we were looking at closing our thrift store, not having an income, blah, blah, blah. Uh, all our staff took time off because we didn't know what was going to happen. People did stay at home, but Jason and I reduced our hours and just kept working. So after a couple of weeks, what we saw is that, well, two weeks went by, nothing. Three weeks, we're, we're a couple hours out of Vancouver, a major port with traffic from China all the time. It's a major... Um, the, the town of Hope is on all the major highways coming out of 
Vancouver, except for the one that goes south into the U.S. So if you're traveling outside of Vancouver driving, you go through Hope. People stop there from Vancouver all the time. We were dealing with customers from Vancouver who would drive through and stop. Uh, essentially, it was like, and I started asking people, I'd say, okay, let me ask you, uh, have you had the coronavirus? Do you know anybody's had the coronavirus? And in a year, over a year of asking all kinds of people coming to the shop, only eight people said that, yes, they knew somebody who had the coronavirus, and none of those people were local. And only, I think, one had died, and that was a person in a, in a nursing home. So I did my own survey, and so we had to conclude it's not dangerous. It's just not. And a lot of our customers were elderly. They'd come in. We never wore masks. I didn't sanitize. We didn't do anything. The, even the district didn't care that we were open. We were serving homeless people who were in and out of the shelters from Chilliwack coming in, blah, 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 nothing. I know. Well, I, I think it's interesting how you say at first, you, you and Jason both kind of freaked out. Like, what is this? No, okay, no, Jason's, Jason's <laughs> saying... No, no, I didn't freak out. Okay. I did. That's marked. <laughs> no, uh, I didn't even notice Michelle freaking out. So Michelle's right. exaggerating a bit. She might well, have taken it a bit more seriously than I did. All right. But in a similar way, uh, at the very beginning, you know, there's a sense of, all right, what is going on here? You know, is this Ebola coming to run rampant through the streets? You know, don't, I don't know. You know, and so there's a couple of weeks of, Let's watch and see. The difference being, Michelle, with you and Jason, that you, the first things that you thought to do were um, <clears throat> to pay attention, to pay attention to things that you could see directly. And I suppose you're in a good position to do that with being at a crossroads, having business be a crossroads, people. Um, However, I'd say most people would have been afraid and closed that business and turned on the television. Yeah, and that's what people, that's what people have done and look to, look to authority and official information, official information to guide their judgment and guide their reactions and guide their uh, uh, cortisol levels and that's been it did it, it did seem to me to be a minority of people who did that like uh, out of the people that I knew and hope it was a tiny minority who did that and there did seem to be a class divide a so minority that, of people who look to the news or to look yeah. to okay who shut their shut themselves away indoors and just paid attention to the news and listened to I can only think of one person in particular who really took it seriously and Granted, so she was an older woman with health problems who is looking after her middle-aged uh, schizophrenic son. So she really was in a position to worry if anything happened to her. But still, she wouldn't hear anything. She wouldn't hear anything about um, that it wasn't actually as dangerous as they were representing. But she still came out and talked to me a few times. And, and even I went <laughs> over for tea before I left. Hope. So it seemed like a minority. Uh, of our customers, a lot of our customers were poor, 
and it also seemed like there was a class divide. So people who homeowners or who had a little more money available to them who could actually just withdraw and watch television all day. Those those people tended to not be in our circle. So, And those are generally the people who are considered the intelligent people who we should listen to, right? And so these uneducated poor, right? Uh, yeah, they're all they're all just listening to Trump and shoving bleach up their nose. And it's been so, um, it's been so caricatured in terms of who believes what. And I mean, I've found that there is, there's such a community of people who are, and not to say that educated is better or best by any means, but people who are educated and sometimes people who are extremely educated who are um you know who've just gone in another direction with this and question question the official the official narrative but and it's it's tedious though it's tedious to get look too far into the question of your experts versus my experts. And I don't think that that's where any of this can be solved or addressed. And what you said before, <clears throat> you said that the rules have been, the rules have been changed. So, you know, my thinking, if only I can get some official journalists to just see that there's something fishy going on here, right? It's no, that's not, that's not going to do it. That's not going to do anything because things don't work that way. You're not going to have the crack reporter, the ace reporter going out there and saying, you know, ah, I'm going to bust this story. No, the ace reporter is gone to bed. Uh, who is it? Clark Kent. Was Clark Kent an ace reporter? I don't know. Superman's long gone. So who's the hero now then?
Yeah, that's a good question. So, well, in my experience, Kate, um, my experience with um, Native activism, so I, I found this out the hard way a few decades ago. Um, I came across a really big news story and I was one of the few people who had inside information about what was happening. And I ended up collecting like a, a full, file folders full of documentation. I would carry a bag around with me with documentation because I couldn't stop talking about it to everybody that I met. So I was the person who would be like invited to a, a party and I would show up with these <laughs> this, this information like, oh my God, you have to pay attention to this. Like just trying to find somebody to report on it. I mean, we were even told indirectly that there was a person who had done two news reports in a local paper and she let us know that she had been told to stop covering this story. She let us know indirectly, for example. So I, so I know I know that that gate. I've met that gate before, not just in media, like when you have a big story and you're like, oh my God, this has got to go to the right people. But also just if it's outside of a paradigm that most people are living in, it's they have to actually have experience of things outside of their paradigm to get them to start questioning it. If they don't have that experience, they just don't. You can show them all the proofs in the world, it won't make any difference. Maybe over time, they might like, at some point in the future, they might have an experience of that reality is different than what they thought. And then they might look back and think, oh, that woman was talking. I had this experience myself, actually. During the time that I came across this news story, uh, I, this is complicated. Um, uh, there was a, a thing that happened in Vancouver where a, a, a woman, a native lawyer woman, she had been approached by um, some elders from uh, a reserve not far from Vancouver because some native children had been taken from the reserve and they wanted her to investigate. So this, these elders came down from the countryside and went to this native lawyer in Vancouver and said, these children have been abducted and the police aren't helping. Can you investigate? So this woman started to investigate. And she found out that Native children were being trafficked in BC and that high level politicians and people in power were involved in it. And uh, she, it ended up in, in court in Vancouver where the she had to be represented by a lawyer. I'm going to forget all the legal details, but she was being represented by a lawyer because somebody was cross-suing her. He was physically assaulted in the courtroom, arrested and taken to a psych ward and put under a psychiatric care and forced medication. She left the country and hid for like 10 years. Uh, meanwhile, all of her files were, were removed from her office. So, so I arrived at the courtroom right after all of this had happened and there was a bunch of activists there. The, the, the ante room was full of people. There was a huge hubbub. People were talking about the child trafficking in Vancouver. This was like in 1992. And I, I didn't know what to make of it. I was like, what? It just sounds so crazy. And I was a native rights activist, environmental activist at that time. But I was like, I, I don't know. 
this can't be real. I can't believe this, that this is real. So, and then it took me years, years and years to really let it sink in that that, that it actually was real, just because it sounded so crazy. And, <laughs> and, you, and you were there, you were on, on site, on scene. And even, even when I actually see it happen in the courtroom. So I, I arrived right after when all the hubbub was going on and people were talking yeah, about it. Yeah, you felt the energy in the first-hand accounts. I did, yeah. Of what happened. and But I think that there is a tendency. Uh, I think there's such a strong... Uh, there's such a strong attachment that we have to, to our own... I mean, it's like there's consensus reality in the macro scale and then our own micro consensus reality where in our own many parts of our personality and mind and that we, we form for ourselves, and, and we're dwelling in that. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier about a baby learning how to speak, I mean, this is all formed from our way of just being oriented, making sense of the world from the very beginning, making sense of the world. And so that's partly, hold on, there's a truck passing. That's partly our, our honest firsthand interpretation or our best firsthand interpretation of what we're experiencing. But it's also everything that we're being told but you know at the at the end of the day wherever we are at whatever age it's how we understand the world around us and how we how we make it safe by judging what is dangerous and what is not dangerous and, and even what's possible and what's impossible yeah yeah yes yeah yeah, yeah the parameters these are the parameters that's right of our experience and I think that that is the most difficult. Um, that is the most difficult realm territory for people to seed, or realm that gets trespassed upon when somebody comes in and says, "Well, have you considered things might be like this instead? Have you considered that that?" person might be lying to you have you considered that these people might be misled and circulating uh circulating lies as truth because that's what they're told they are you know that all infringes on your own sense of well-being in the world based on how you understand it and how you navigate and so uh, that's serious stuff you know, it, certainly, it certainly is. And in fact, when I was encountering these these things that they should have been impossible, but seemed, well, were not impossible, um, I found it so disorienting. I was having a sort of, like my vision was going woo-woo. I was having sort of dizzy spells because my brain just couldn't, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, you meet the impossible, you don't stay like a normal person. In fact, um, 
Do, do you know David Peace's books, The Red Riding Trail? Uh, I, I the do not yeah, so his books are really interesting because he wrote four novels um, about um, Yorkshire during the years that Jimmy Savile was up there and also um, the um, the Yorkshire Ripper was killing women. This, this, he, was, this, this was a TV. This was a they made, Yeah, that's right. They made it into TV I saw, movies. I saw, bit, I saw a bit of that, but not from whole thing right so so this is after i had this experience with the doing native rights stuff um the thing that we talked about is that we couldn't get things into the newspapers or into the news but we could put it into fiction and that maybe the thing to do would be to write fiction so i think this is what david peace did he grew up there at that time so he witnessed he you know things like in vancouver when when there's a pedophile ring operating out of the vancouver club you, you hear rumors, missing women, the Picton farm, like you hear stuff. So it was probably very similar. And in his books, the thing that was that clo most closely represented my experience is how the protagonists who came across this information of these dark goings on became deranged. And I, I did. I became deranged. How, how, how the pro so the people who got light of the you know who were enlightened by this information it, it deranged so what is can we just think or dwell for a moment on derangement mm. what that involves it you know what are we talking about when we say derangement because that's very interesting sure yeah um so i would describe my my state is, it was the worst experience of my life. It was, I was absolutely terrified because I didn't know what was safe and what wasn't safe. Like the rules were out the window. Anything could happen. Crazy things were happening. Um, and I was in a very heightened state of excitement, right? Desperate. You know, and that years for, for at least three or four years, probably longer. Mm -hmm. hmm. And so your whole body, you were feeling the effects of this in your whole body. So you probably stretched out greater heartbeat and. Oh, everything. Yeah. And also a feeling, how about disassociation? Well, um, it's harder to dissociate if you feel like the state might break in the door at any time, if you know what I mean, right? Like I actually left the province. Yeah. So, but so the, this, huh? Are you? Do you feel like that state of derangement was some kind of a necessary transitional? I think it's what happens. Just what when, happens. Yeah, when you encounter organized malevolence in the world around you. Hmm. We don't stay calm like they show in the movies. I don't know. There was none of us that was calm. We were all, you, you just can't even imagine how horrible it was. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so if you're having, if you're facing, I guess there are probably protections that one's own body and self has against getting to that point, <clears throat> you know, if, if the information 
around you is suggesting that things aren't as they are and derangement is the next next stop off the bus <laughs> there are probably ways that your body um Mm-hmm. The body prevents prevents that from happening. Yeah. Yeah. And the culture at large prevents it from happening. Yeah, rationalizations, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Just refusal to engage with the material. Just default to trusting authority. It's like it's like the child trusting the parent because you don't have a choice. You just have to go like, oh no, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna trust the authority because the other, the other option is unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the um, what is it? The uh, the monster that's known is always preferable to the monster that's unknown. You know, in terms of even if you're in a bad situation, to go to a situation that you just don't know what's in store for you there you want to stick with what you know regardless of how how badly you're being affected by it yeah so in in this situation this experimental gene altering vaccination rollout where now they're doing things like uh, I think it's a million dollar lottery you can put your name in the lottery and if you to get a vaccine, <laughs> you get the vaccine, your name goes into the draw, you might win a million dollars or in Washington state, they're handing out spliffs with vaccines. Like, And then there's that weird thing, if you put a magnet on your, where you got the vaccine, the magnet sticks. And like, if you let yourself think, if you're like, no, I wanna trust the government, but you let yourself think for a moment, like they could be putting anything into your body and probably like who knows what it is actually uh and that you can't trust them you can't trust this all of our institutions the media the government you can't trust any of them to be interested in your health uh that becomes a very scary world it becomes almost unthinkable it's um it's uh yeah another one of my relatives who may or may not wish to be identified, but he won't be identified at the moment. He, he saw um, TWA, remember I, it was TWA flight 800. Do you recall that? It was a- Is that the one that disappeared? Plane. Well, it came down off the coast of Long Island. Oh, that and, one, okay, yeah. Yeah, and there were reports that um, people saw something going up to it before it came down and um so this relative saw the plane come down and he saw something going up to it too but and the fbi came it to uh to ask questions as a witness and um i think he had a sense of not wanting to get into it and he just said i I didn't see. I didn't see anything. Or no, they, they, I guess they asked, did you see something coming up to the plane? And he said no. And that, that was the end of their questioning. And they were gone. But the official story, you know, was that nothing, 
nothing came up to that. But, but you know, this is... People know, like, so this is this has been my experience too. Like, the, the one of the arguments that's made to discredit conspiracy is, well, people would have seen, they would have said something like, but actually people know to keep their mouths shut. Yeah. They actually, they actually do. Yeah. They yeah. don't have to even be told. Yeah. Yeah, and so when you when you get to that realm, that realm of derangement, that realm where things aren't what you think they are, and I think I don't think that I don't think the existence of ironed out, worked out theories of what it all means, where it all comes from, necessarily help because people hear this. People hear these stories kind of cold and it's very, it's impossible to, it's impossible to accept an idea of, I, I don't know, nanoparticles that are somehow going to do something in the future that they're not doing yet, but they're in your body now. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm, that's, this is, I'm not being a proponent of that theory. I'm just saying that's something that's out there. And most people hear that and just say that, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's totally ridiculous. You're talking crazy. Or idea of people who are guiding, guiding the fate of humanity in, in ways that are very um, engineered, you know, having, having those things made into stories just makes them less palatable, you know, and added to the fact that the more you iron out a theory like that, perhaps the less likely it is to be true because you're giving more and more, it's more and more speculative. The more you, the more you, um, the more you speculate, right? It's, however, I, I think that so you have you have these people talking about what they think is going on and it just you know it it hits the wall it hits the it hits the uh rejection wall for most people you know you know that's it's an easy thing to push away but for me i just feel that things such as million dollar lottery chances free beers and babysitting, free donuts, you know, and, and this vast campaign of um, push, 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 get your children, get your children, you get Kawasaki's disease. This comes, this happens in children. This is connected to coronavirus. You know, your children are in danger. They're putting their grandparents, get everybody, you know, this push, this incredible push to supposedly inoculate against something that is, you know, I, I think from what I've looked at and heard roughly equivalent to perhaps the flu epidemic in the late sixties, you know, bad, but nothing really happened then to, you know, shut society down. Um, all of this push and with the reported deaths from the vaccination at the same time, 
that raises everyone, every single one of my alarms that something, something fishy is happening here. Yeah, so I had this conversation with lots of people in Hope, my customers in the thrift store. So one of the things that was odd is in January when I tried to pay my medical insurance bill, which I'd been paying for a few years, which in Canada it's nominal, I think it's $30 per person or something like that, to get pretty much complete medical coverage. And everybody pays it, right? Uh, so a normal thing and suddenly in January I'm, I'm trying to pay it and they keep returning my money oh nobody has to pay for medical anymore that was the first thing I was like what weird they're just going to give us medical now and then uh, and then after they announced the pandemic uh, they started like offering thousands of dollars to people who <laughs> so they could stay at home like thousands and thousands of dollars. So these poor people who are used to like fighting to get a welfare check of $400 a month or some, you know, tiny bit of scrap from the government, they're suddenly just giving them like $2,000 a month. It's easy. You don't need anything. You just sign up on the website and they just give it to you. So lots of poor people were like, this is really weird how willing they are to just hand out money like this. Yeah, never seen anything like it before. What, where, where is this money suddenly coming from? You yeah, know, they're just the, printing the, it up. And, and that's the thing. It's, it's, it's being printed. Why wasn't it being printed before if it can be printed? Why all? Why now? Why? So that's, I think, that's I think the they have been. Hmm? I think that, I, I mean, qualitative easing was that. I believe since 2008, right? So they probably were just stockpiling a bunch of cash somewhere. Um, and, it, you know, as part of their plan, so this is me speculating again, because uh, they knew they were going to need a whole bunch of cash before they crashed the economy and replaced the old system with the new system, which is going to be some kind of uh, digital currency. So they know it's going to be worthless soon. So it doesn't matter, just... Uh. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And, and so that to me, and this is all when you, when you get past the, when you get past the kind of consensus reality boundary and into, I don't know, Oz or wherever you get to, mm -hmm. this all becomes of interest, you know, that, so at, I, at a certain point I started to I started to listen to people like Catherine Austin Fitz in terms of her monetary mm -hmm. explanations and, um, you know, more James Corbett and uh, Alison McDowell in terms of the blockchain and biotech and, um, and the, uh, just in terms of where technologies are heading so I myself started to investigate and explore in a very thorough manner what people are saying. And so various possibilities start to seem more likely to me. I, I, still, I still don't have a real sense of, okay, this is happening, that is happening, but 
I have a greater sense of where the real problem areas are, what things are making me very uneasy, what I'm, um, I mean, the sense that a lot of, so much of what is happening seems to be happening in, par in parallel, in the same wavelength, the same story, things seem to be being set up in a certain way, as you're saying, you know, your free health care that came a little bit before the pandemic that makes you think, wait, what, what is this? Why, why now? You know, you start to, and there's always a danger of, of connecting too many dots, right? But, but then if you look into it, if you explore enough, you can become, uh, you can be choosy about what dots you connect just when you see it repeated enough in different people's stories from different angles. you triangulate this stuff, right? You don't just go from one lens, look through, you don't just look through one lens, but you know, even so to get, to bring, to bring your, your angle, or to bring any of these angles fully formed to someone, it, you know, it's like presenting them with ET, present them with the alien. They're going to say that, you know, that's an animatronic figure. That's not, you know, that's not a real, it's not. Well, I don't real. know. I don't, maybe in your circles, but um, Jason and I, we had, we did a, a, after Prisoner Infinity was published, we tried to start like a, a circle in hope of people who are interested in the alien um, phenomenon just to explore all the information in there. And it was impossible because it, every the only people that showed up totally believed in aliens, right? And so there's this weird disconnect in this culture where there's a perception that in general people don't believe in alien, but when you start talking to them, pretty much everybody does. Have you noticed that? It's like you're either for it or you're against it, right? Isn't that like, wasn't that George Bush or something? Or either for us or against? It's like people have a very uh, black or white. Um, so either they're completely incredulous or totally credulous, you know. And and you know, as in that case, you're saying a lot more people are credulous. But then they'll, with the credulousness, it becomes much more vulnerability to being misled at the same time potentially well, it is a mislead that's how people got there into such a, a broad-based belief and in both things in that the culture the culture that we live in there's the, the mainstream culture doesn't believe in ufo so that's one of the things people were led to believe and the other one is that people believe in ufo so so I, I hear this so many times. There's a woman who worked for me and hope she she's waiting for the mothership to come and take her away. She literally thinks that she's an alien. She um, totally believes in aliens, but she thinks she can't talk about it because nobody else believes in aliens. But if you just, you know, go to the next person in line and ask them like they, it's, it's like it's, most people actually believe in aliens and UFOs and they've been led to believe it. They just don't know that they've been led to believe it. It's, it's a crazy double think.
But when you say most people, I mean, again, it's the specific demographic that Michelle mentioned earlier, which is the poor people. So the same people who don't believe the government or don't believe in the COVID narrative are also the people that believe that UFOs are aliens from outer space. So, so I'll just put that qualification in there. There's a much larger qualification, which maybe I'll get to, which is we don't really know most people. We just don't. Nobody can do a survey of 8 billion people. So we're really always referring to our own encounters, first-hand, second-hand, third-hand. We're constantly like organic computers. We're constantly crunching numbers based on our own direct experience or indirect experience, but it's still direct, even if it's indirect. It's mediated. We're still, it's still arriving here in our bodies. Um, I suppose now that I've started, I'll just say the one thing that keeps coming to me, which is, to me, all of this comes down to what do we know in our bodies as compared to what our minds are telling us? That, that's where the struggle is, because our bodies know what's going on. And, and all of this mapping and making coherent, which I've done for years with my books, it's not really about trying to convince anyone of anything. If that was my motivation, I would have failed, as Kate's finding out. You can't convince anyone of anything. They have to find out themselves. And, um, but it wasn't. It was to try and make my mental picture, my cognitive interpretation of reality coherent enough that I could start to tune into and get a sense of what my body already knew. And if it doesn't take that trajectory, then it's worthless. And this is how we've got the we've got the consent, the seemingly consensus view of the authorities, and it's it's the intelligentsia and the administerial elite, and half of whom are lying, and the other half just believe because they're invested in their careers. Uh, they create the false idea of a consensus. It's got nothing to do with numbers. And then there's a probably much larger demographic who who uh, go to alternate sources, David Icke is just the easiest go-to there, and they're given and partly co-create these narratives that um, make them feel that they've made their world more coherent, but they stay at the mental level. They're designed in such a way that they don't encourage or even allow the settling into the body. Like David Icke's always hyped up. It's always pumped up. Like somehow if you're seeing this and this is real, you've got to have strong emotional reaction to it. That's supposed to make it more real. My work's been the opposite. It's been, I'll only talk about it once I've processed it enough that I can talk about it very calmly and dispassionately. I don't have an, an emotional reaction to it because unless, like Michelle's saying, unless you're actually in the, 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 the throes or in the entangled with organized malevolence, then then it's appropriate to have an adrenaline response. But if you're just seeing what's going on, um, well, the, the only point in seeing what's going on is, is to gradually process the reality so that, so that uh, we can make enough coherence and space cognitively to allow the body affect to come up into awareness so we we see what our body knows already and that is a calm it's it, it can only happen when we're calm but it's also calming 
it's calming to see reality, even if we see that reality is against us. So the peddlers of the conspiracy narratives that are all pumped up, and it's all about how bad it is, that it's counterfeit. It might the facts might be true, but the spin makes it untrue. Um I, I feel like it's didn't quite finish the point there, but I think I more or less did that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm just reiterating that the main point is uh, gradually becoming aware of what our body knows so we can let go of our mental defenses against reality and settle more and more into a bodily knowing of, of, of what's real. And, and that, what our body knows isn't just about organized malevolence and all these things that you guys have been talking about, which is good to hear, and it's useful for people to hear it for the reasons I'm, I'm, I'm stating. Uh, but it's, the, it's just the tip of an iceberg uh, in terms of malevolence, actually. But, but the, the organized malevolence, which is metaphysical, I believe, is the tip of a much larger iceberg, which is metaphysical reality, which, is, which isn't primarily ma- malevolent. Um, and the context of that iceberg is, is, that, is that our idea about humanity is, is, is wrong. Like there, there's, there's no humanity. There's no such thing as humanity. You know, that's, that seems like a big leap from all the other stuff. But I, I just mentioned it because when we're, when we're trying to figure out what do people know and what do other people think and how can we make them understand and, and how can people believe this and then they say they believe and all that stuff, it doesn't really work for me anyway. And I think it's because we, we have a misconception of what, those all those bodies out there what they really represent like we theory of mind we assume they're all like us number one uh number two we we think that they're separate from us so but they're neither like us nor are they separate from us necessarily some some human bodies out there might be sentient the way that you or i sentient but some might not be right and some might be truly malevolent Etc. Etc. We just don't know. This assumption that this uniform humanity is just an assumption. That's that's a great point, actually, because what I found in my activism was that when it really mattered, and I don't I don't know how real this was is or not, but I was told that the environmental movement in Vancouver was uh, infiltrated by undercover operatives, uh, one in six. One in six people was undercover misrepresenting themselves. Uh, I know that was back in like 1992 or something like that. Now the numbers of people working as private security contractors, like with all the different private security companies and then all the social media contracts is thousands and thousands, if not millions of people working as um, misrepresenting themselves. So they're working jobs where they pretend to be one of us, but they're actually not. So then they're like a bot. They're literally like a bot and, and their job is to influence and lead. So they're in amongst us in the human energy field. They're misrepresenting reality. They're pushing people in my experience with one particular undercover person was, was so aggressive he could just push people into 
the craziest directions because nobody wanted to confront him because he was just so loud and big and aggressive. But they accepted him as his, as their leader because he had the the right story. <laughs> so so it's a, something like one in six of us guessing um, is more or less functioning like a bot. So you're saying private security contractors, people being hired yeah. to perform a certain role and misrepresent themselves in order to lead. So that's some, and where, where do you get that, uh, that percentage? Well, you know, where? Yeah, it was years ago. So it was uh, in the activist group I was in, there were some people who were, who were very knowledgeable and experienced, and that was the number that they had. But um, it also was confirmed by somebody who uh, did contract work for the Canadian Intelligence Service, who was sympathetic. So he wasn't working. He wasn't working directly. And he was a guy whose job it was, was to put together um, computers for environmental activists so that the computers would right exactly <laughs> but he was sympathetic so he thought he was helping the environment the environmentalists by doing this yeah I, I i do think most of most of these actors think that they are uh working for the benefit yeah. of humanity in one way or another but i but i would have i i i have a real problem with um with lying and misrepresenting for me too it's horrible it's for, evil for, for that reason and that's um i had a i had somebody as an instance to a few days ago at a gas station i asked somebody for directions and he handed me my phone his phone to look at the map and i handed it back to him and then he popped his head around again. He said, are you vaccinated? And he was older and he thought, oh, he's older, he's worried, you know? And I, I just said, no, I'm not. And I said, do you want me to get you a, a sanitizing wipe? You know, he said, I, I just wanna know if I need to disinfect this now, you know? And then he said, you should get, you should be vaccinated. And yeah, it was a bit, it was a little upsetting to me, just a little, you know, because he was he was being nice, he was being nice and neighborly and helping me out, but then he was doing the other thing. And, you know, from, but coming from his own belief system. And uh, so I was trying to be, I was trying to be understanding of that. And uh, my, one of my sons said, well, you know, why don't you just lie? Why don't you just tell him you were vaccinated? And I said, you know, no, you know, I can't, that's, that breaks the entire social contract to lie. You know, even if I think I'm doing it for the benefit of, uh, the benefit of anything. I mean, and I could, I can imagine some extreme circumstances when lying could be necessary for preservation of one's own life or well-being or that of their family. However, short of that, it's uh, I, I just think it is inexcusable. And I think that perhaps there's a um, 
I think that there is a broad willingness to misrepresent truth for what one perceives as the greater good that's very problematic right now i don't know if it's always been like that but um you know what's silent actors infiltrating i mean that just sounds it's just just wrong come on that's just wrong everybody understands that yeah, no, it's a terrible experience. So, so my experience of that was, I was naive, even though I'd been an activist and interested in political stuff for a decade at least. So, I, but I was so naive. So when I got involved in the Native rights, um, I started to have these weird experiences with people who were involved. And uh, so, so, like, part of it is I. Like anybody who gets involved to the to the degree I was cares about people. So I I was cared about these people who are at risk so much. And then these these infiltrators were in manipulating, spreading rumors. Uh, like my, I got things were said about me. I was sort of pushed out and I was looked at suspiciously. And uh, and in the end, it was just terrible. Like this community of people that could have come together. In fact, they had come together was just, I mean, they, they know what they're doing. They're really good at it. The COINTELPRO techniques work. This community was just broken apart into pieces and everybody just went their own separate ways because it was too horrible. But you, you know, this is, you know, and that sounds, and the, at first it sounds unlikely or unbelievable to me that there's so many people who are, misrepresenting and causing these types of problems. However, I have another direct experience, yet another relative, a young relative, who was approached um, for to apply for a job whereby this person would um, infiltrate, um, I think this was around Black Lives Matter, or it was right before the election, I think. And so she, was to the idea was that she would um be on in some groups i think internet groups um in order to kind of diffuse situations and you know and i thought oh that's not it's not i can imagine why people would want that but what surprised me is the pay for two weeks or something was $4,000. And I just thought, wow, all right, what, you know, that's some funding behind yeah, like that. And that's just the test period. The two weeks is just the test period. So they give you an innocuous job. And this is me speculating because my encounters with these people, but they give you a job that you can morally, it's like, oh yeah, I can do that, no problem. And then they see how you perform and if you're willing to do something a little bit different. So depending on how your relative was with crossing lines, she could have advanced actually quite far into really unpleasant manipulations of people. Do you see how that would work? Yeah, I, like, I, see, I see precisely how that would work. And that's, um, and that is, uh, that's sobering. 
that's uh, that's a problem. Yeah, have you ever had experience with Scientologists online? Not not online, only only on the sidewalk. Right. So <laughs> personality tests. Right. <laughs> so a lot of people know a lot more about Scientology now than they did a few years ago, but if you study the Scientology techniques of misrepresenting themselves, of in, infiltrating uh, other groups, like all of their um, front groups that they trick people, like the, I think it's Narconon is a Scientology group, and then one of the big uh, detox organizations that gets government contracts to for people to go through drug rehabilitation. Which one is that? I can't remember that does the saunas map. Anyway, so they, they're crypto-scientologists uh, that are all, all through the regular mainstream culture. Do, you, secret? By, by crypto, you mean just secret? Yeah, yeah. They, they misrepresent themselves. They say, I'm not a Scientologist. So this, this was a common thing they used to do online, but then um, it was noticed, and I don't know if they're still doing it, but if there was a, a newspaper article that reported something critical of Scientology, the Scientologists whose job it was to um, do p positive PR would go in the comment section and start saying th things like, I'm not a Scientologist, but it seems to me like this reporter might be a, a bigot because isn't it just a religion like any other religion? Things like that, right? And so if you look at how Scientology does it, these techniques seem to have been picked up uh, by security contractors outside of Scientology. And in fact, I think Scientology was a security contractor for the U.S. government, I'm pretty sure. So everybody, every, the, the common culture has been trained up by Scientologists, the Scientology infiltration approach. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Where are we? There's a certain tone of voice that Scientologists use if you if you if you watch the the videos of like the true believer Scientologists, like they're trained to confront, um, to use language in very aggressive ways and to confront people in very aggressive ways. And most people, when they're confronted like that, will just back down. And it's spread. It's spread. And now it's in like uh, the um, the news panels when they have people sitting around talking about issues and it's like mannered speech and mannered ways of communicating with each other. It's, it's like how the Scientologists do it. They're, they probably have picked up. In fact, they probably even had um, the Scientologists have probably been offering training their own training. I think it's, uh, it's some kind of tech to uh, media organizations to communicate in this way. Cause uh, so most people, just another another form of NLP, neuro linguistic programming, another way to control how um, the person that you're you're interacting with is receiving what you're saying. The way to manipulate the uh, the dialogue, the exchange. I read something so interesting recently, or heard it on a podcast. I've, somebody, a British man talking about um, the use of NLP in the past, um, the past year. And something that I never knew, you can use the technique of NLP in written form. And so 
with regular NLP, you're, you're saying one thing, but you're kind of maybe touching a person or doing a distractive gesture at certain moments to get their mind to just focus on certain words of what you're saying in order for them to take in something completely different than the whole of what you're speaking. And um, the point that this person was making was that this can be done in written form. When you say you end a sentence with some a, a word that's misspelled. And so your conscious mind takes that in one way, but your subconscious mind takes it in another way. And it, perhaps that is cemented regardless of what the rest of the sentence was about, perhaps that word or the word that it resembles becomes what you take away from it. And it's people have gotten very clever about these things. <laughs> this is the problem. People have gotten very clever. And when I, when I look with awe at <clears throat> just in the face of the raw data, how people seem to be ignoring parts of that raw data and to be seemingly terrified of data that I think is, you know, why are, why are you so afraid of that? That's something that's happened some decades ago. Nobody was afraid back then. Um, but when I, <clears throat> when I hear about these various mind misleading techniques that can be applied on a grand scale, it starts to make sense. You know, it's, there is, there are these moments, I have the invasion of the body snatchers moments, looking around and thinking, what, where, where is everybody? Where, is there anybody home here? And then looking into that, it makes sense. People are hypnotized. It's like, I, I've got a friend and when she was 10 years old. She's, uh, you know, she's 10 years old. I went in with her to a <clears throat> TJ Maxx, which is a big, you know, multi-item store that we have here. And she was, we were going around and she starts to say, Kate, Kate, you're, hyp you're hypnotized. You're hypnotized. You know, and I said, what, what? And she was saying, you know, you're kind of, because I was just looking around at everything and she's saying, you're hypnotized. My mom says, that's what my mom says to me. You know, when I go into a place like this, I get hypnotized. And uh, I thought, yeah, you're right. I am hypnotized. And it's like everybody's hypnotized right now. <laughs> it really, though, and it's not funny. I laugh because, uh, because it's too difficult otherwise. It's terrible. Yeah.
I don't know what to say about that, except I totally relate to the body snatchers imagery. <laughs> we were just talking about that the other day in the car. So there's this phenomenon both Jason and I noticed independently um, here in Spain. I, I, I don't know, maybe you could shed some light on it, but I, in Canada, I never experienced this. If you're driving down the road in a, in your car and there's, uh, people on the street, people look right into your car and look at you here. And it happens a lot. So, like, I'm always, like, catching people's eye and going, like, oh, like, hola. Uh, so it's either it's a cultural difference or we're somehow putting out some kind of vibe that we're not with the body snatches, maybe, or something like that. But it's kind of like that. Like, it feels like people are seeing we're, they're seeing us as we're driving by in our cars. Do you, <clears throat> does Spain allow tinted windows? Because that could be one. Their tinted windows are so common now that I think people maybe in the U.S. anyway. They're not so here. Uh-uh, not they're, here. Not they're very common here. Were they common in Canada? They weren't. No, no. I mean, they they would stand out if I saw something like a, usually a truck or something with tinted windows. It would stand out. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So people are seeing you, and you're being, you're feeling seen. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. Hmm. I think that's. Um, I don't know what to say about that because I I felt. There's something that's so anonymizing about the masks that I think it makes has made people look at others less. And the masks are much more prevalent here than I think in Canada or where you were in Canada. I don't know about Spain, but um, there's a lot less direct contact because it's harder to recognize people. And so usually you kind of scan around. Do I know this person, that person? You can't really tell, so you don't necessarily bother. But yeah, I've noticed this also. People were being trained not to look at each other. I have a number of thoughts here. Um, but they're all kind of mixed up. One is that we've been turned into kind of currency as human beings. And I think this is related to some of the things you've been talking about. And the other is that what you were just talking about, which is um, if people can be physically manipulated, this is in the Darren, Darren Brown videos, like he shows how to, it's this really advanced NLP. It shows how to manipulate people physically in a way that their mind's completely unaware of it, and then they'll start acting in ways that they don't understand why they're acting that way. So if you can communicate directly with bodies, of course, that's 99%. Well, it's 100% really of what somebody is, the mind. What, where is it? You can't even locate it. Um, and the more dissociated people are into this mind bubble, the more susceptible they are to being manipulated physically. So this is a kind of it's a kind of hypnotic method that's like possession, allows for possession. 
I think, and it's probably been going on for, for, for a long, long time, is my sense, but that we've reached a point where we have the technology now that there's all kinds of rogues, agencies and corporations, and it's just everywhere, like Michelle's talking about Scientology. Well, it's not like Scientology took over the world. They wanted to, but it's not like they were successful. They did infiltrate a lot, including Hollywood, and that counts for something, but it's more that they were themselves a carrier of a virus that was, you know, that animated them. And like I write about in 16 Mounts of Hell, they're possessed by something that then allows them to control, infect and control others. Um, anyway, the other thing I wanted to mention, whether it's connected, is about the lying. Because uh, when, Kate, when you said that lying is breaking the social contract, well, I would say that lying is the social contract, right? Right from how are you, I'm fine. You know, that, that's our first, that's when we confirm that we're going to obey the social contract to lie. And that we do it all the time, like we can't interact socially without lying. So it's a very, very broad spectrum. So so you guys were talking about the, uh, well, the usual suspects, like the obvious um, embodiments or practitioners, practitioners of deception that we can identify some of us, those who are willing to look close enough and say that's wrong that's bad that's terrible it's reality distortion but uh, the thing is is to follow that back it's a mirror to follow it back to our own behaviors because i don't know uh if michelle will remember but there were there have been times where i got very upset with michelle for being dishonest and not just with me i mean it was but there were a few times with me around something specific i won't go into and maybe that clued me in that, that she has this tendency to avoid difficult situations by not owning up to something. But, but, but I noticed it, you know, very little things. So, Kate, you were saying, well, uh, what were you saying? Like, um, the problem is, is when it's on a big scale or something. But actually, it's when it's very... Oh, no, you were saying that there might be situations or circumstances where it's really important and you would lie. Well, sure, if a cop comes up and says uh, something that if you tell the truth, you're going to get arrested, it would be kind of stupid to tell the truth, I think. So that that's easy enough to say, well, you know, I might lie there. But it's looking at actually the trivial ways that we lie um, in order to avoid an uncomfortable situation. Everybody does that. Everybody does that. Maybe Dave doesn't. I don't know. I hope Dave doesn't, because I have to believe that someone doesn't do it. Because I, I found out that I did it. I do it. Like I, I consider myself the most honest person that I know, outside of Dave, maybe, but I don't know him well enough to I have to talk to his wife to be sure. Because I'm compulsively honest. I lie when it's going to be excruciating. I mean, I, Freudian slip. I tell the truth when it's going to be excruciating to tell the truth, right? Um, but I noticed, I noticed in the last, not very recently, but when I was still in Canada, there were a couple of things that came up and I just I just slightly misrepresented the t truth because it was just, uh, it was just going to be too uncomfortable and I, and I caught myself doing it. And I think we don't, 
You know, I think we just don't know that we're doing it. It's it's this idea of the white lie that's a self-serving. Yeah? We've got it's in it's in TV shows. If if somebody if a relative's dying, the parent lies to the children, doesn't tell them, and we're not even supposed to question it. We're just supposed to think that they're, they're doing the right thing, even though that's patently obvious a bad idea in my view to try and protect children from the truth from reality terrible idea um so but that idea of the white lie is you know bad enough but then we turn it around and say well if this is good for me then it's not really lying is it it's a white lie because you know it, it, it serves me well that's the definition of a black lie actually so there's a lot of double things going on around this I think and and also once you if you're I mean, that's a very good point that lying is the social contract uh, in those ways you know so I'm separating the habits of misrepresentation which I of course do participate in as well as little as I um, want to admit it yeah, I, I I will say I'm fine and ask people how they are just because that's what comes out of my mouth. And I think we need to we, we need to differentiate between individuals and the state, really well, in this, well, right? Because well, we can't. I, yeah. Well, what I'm I was gonna tie I was gonna tie that together because I'm thinking you know the kind of lies that Jason, the habit of lying just as how we how we interact on an individual level perhaps makes it much easier for people to so because that's my problem how do so many people um uh, allow themselves to deliberately lie in the service of whatever it is the state or an organization even if they think they're doing it for a, a greater good to me that's not that's not okay you know but if you are looking at it as as lying being something that comes extremely naturally to us as individuals and within our cultures then perhaps for most people the idea of telling an actual lie in the form of misrepresentation doesn't seem to be a moral problem it's like Okay, we have a problem of, of human beings just living together. This isn't a new problem. It's an old problem. Uh, I think this is uh, like one of the um, one of the solutions to human beings living together has been uh, television. So you've probably seen this, Kate. Maybe not so much these days, but it used to be like you could have a room full of people all watching the same program on television. And when that was happening, nobody was fighting. But if you turned the television off, things might start to happen, right? Like Christmas holidays, and then who knows what's going to happen. And so um, I, I think this is an ongoing problem, just simply of people living together. If, if we have to tell little white lies to each other in order to keep the violence at bay, I think that's okay or even just to have some privacy, right? 
I think that's okay too. Yeah. It's but, a slippery slope. I, I see it as the same rationale as the social engineers, just just small versus big. Because they believe that they're probably, possibly, they believe that they're preventing uh, mimetic violence breaking out, for example. Except, so in the case of a salesman who's selling a faulty product knowingly because he wants to make his bonus, like, or somebody who's infiltrated a group. So there was a scandal a few years ago, it's because in the UK they had undercover policemen sleeping with female activists. Yeah. And it was their policy, like, go out and sleep with these female activists because we want to know what's going on. That's a different kind of lie than just saying, right? Like, hey, how are you doing today? Oh, yeah, I'm fine or whatever. Or, yeah, granny, you look nice in that dress. Like, it's a whole different scale. So I don't think we can say it's all one thing, especially in the case where there's particular, like, because there is organized malevolence. Well, but you can still, you can still, I think, uh, perhaps accept that it's all part of the same gray scale. You know, Jason says slippery slope, same, so the slippery slope argument is saying because this can lead to that, you know, what happens at the top of the hill can lead to the bottom of the hill. We shouldn't do this at the top of the hill. So maybe you shouldn't apply a slippery slope argument to it. You know, you're saying, well, the part you slide out at the top of the hill, maybe it's okay. Uh, but I do think, I, I do think perhaps it is all part of the same scale or the same habit, the same willingness, same willingness to misrepresent to, because it probably in essence represents a, um, a disjoining from one's own bodily uh, feedback in terms of what's right and what's wrong. So, you know, to do it in order that Christmas can happen without everybody leaving in tears, right? Yeah, you know, I don't know. Maybe Jason, maybe Jason has a good, ar I, I'm actually, I'm sure Jason has a good argument as to why that's not right. But I'm just going to go with my little point. I want to send people home with the cookies in their belly and smiles on their faces, you know, okay. So this part of the slippery slope I'm comfortable with down at the bottom or well, or it's somewhere along the way where people operatives are sleeping with um, activists in order to gain information. No, I'm not comfortable with that anymore, but I do. But at the same time, I do see it as, um, and so I'm just trying to agree with both of you. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, that's which another, is my, which is my habit. Well, yeah. So I mean, this is what thoughtful people think about. Um, uh, there is a, there's another aspect too, which is that uh, oftentimes people aren't conscious of how they're misrepresenting themselves. So if you, so I'll just take like a, a non therapeutic approach. So Raymond Gaeta uh, is a philosopher at Oxford. He talks about um, the difference between spin and just the old style out, uh, all, out and out political lying. 
So he noticed the difference between Australia and the UK because in the UK, people were, no, it was the other way around. In one of the countries, they had been, the population had been subjected to spin, which is a subtle misrepresentation. And the he UK found, was the spin country. Right, with, with Tony Blair. And so he found the people there were completely disoriented because they couldn't, they could no longer tell uh, or agree on the basis for what constituted evidence. So they didn't know what to believe or what was real and what was, so they became very easy to manipulate. Whereas in Australia, where they were just used to the old style politics where people were lying, everybody knew the politicians were lying. Right. And so there was a kind of honesty in that, where they, they knew, they knew what to believe and what not to believe because they just knew their politicians were lying. And so now we're in a, a condition of being subjected to spin everywhere. And so my last point on this is that if you live in a repressive state like the Soviet Union, then lying is defensive. And you can lie actually to protect your own internal sense of integrity. Because when the state insists that you believe that, uh, that trying to think of a good example, um, say in critical race theory, that whiteness is a, a parasitic, um, oh geez, I can't remember the words, but so <laughs> if, the for, if the state is forcing you to, 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 oh, to perform a belief in something that is absurd and harmful, if you can lie and say that you do, meanwhile, being perfectly aware that you're doing it to protect yourself and your family, you'll stay sane. You need to be able to do that too. That's my point. Well, Michelle, isn't what you're saying though about that spin, spin being disorienting, doesn't that argue a bit more for what Jason is saying? Because perhaps what we are, so maybe that's the difference. So I would qualify what those operatives are doing infiltrating sleeping with activists as being an outright lie. That's not spin, that's a lie, <laughs> profound lie. Whereas um, spin, what I would be doing at Christmas in order to keep people from fighting about religion or whatever, that would be spin or the, no, you don't think so? No, the, the spin is like what Scientologists do or um, what uh, Fauci has been doing uh, with his data, right? It's it's not, I mean, he's out, outright lying too, but there's subtleties in it so that, um, like the game he's playing is not just outright lying. The game he's playing is keep contradicting himself and people will tune out, they'll stop listening. Right, but, just be inconsistent, and that's spin. That's one way to do spin. It's sophisticated misrepresentation. So, okay, I get. And thank you for that clarification. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I'm going to concede Michelle's point. I think, although I think she misstated it from what I understood, because what I understood with the qualification was not not that there's a difference between the state lying and the, an ordinary 
pee on lying, but there's a difference between lying to an, another human being and lying to the state. That's what I got from it anyway. And um, I totally agree. Uh, uh, this line from the Wild Bunch came to mind then, which is when Pike's saying to Dutch, his best buddy, you know, I gave my word. Uh, and Dutch says, that ain't what matters. It's who you give it to. So that's true of lying. It's who you lie to. So uh, it, whether it's a lie or not. Uh, and I certainly, uh, when I was trying to get Amazon to get let me into my account over several weeks of troubleshooting with barely human, seemingly barely human, like bot-like people on the other end of the line, um, I had absolutely no qualms about misrepresenting reality to try and get the fuckers to actually... You know, comply to my demands not that I spun you know elaborate stories but I certainly I mean it just didn't even occur to me I just do whatever it took because the level of the lack of sentience that I was dealing with there and I don't mean as individuals who knows when they go home and they, they you know they love their kids too probably but as an extension of the Amazon corporation confined constricted by the the ai algorithmic control mechanisms of that corporation within the egregore of amazon they're not sentient they can't be sentient and this is what we're looking at i'd say collectively people are allowing themselves to be possessed by an egregore and their sentience is, is withdrawing from their bodies so, yeah, if you lie to somebody who's just possessed by Araman, who, who isn't actually sentient, uh, it's more like um, when your computer's malfunctioning and you you do what you have to do to, to, to make it work. You're not concerned about its feelings or its, it, you know, it doesn't have a sense of reality to distort. Well, you're also, you're lying to the person not as an in you're lying to them in their role as a representative of a, a larger entity you're not lying to them as an individual and in that in their capacity in their position as in their official position as being representing that egregore you are you are lying to to that i, th I think that that's an important distinction yeah, yeah and actually and one of them uh one of the agents i dealt with it was the second to last the one who finally solved it or um was different but that person even told me to lie because he said oh i'm going to make it i'm going to put in the report that somebody hacked your account and put this two-step verification as a way to get them to take it off it didn't actually work but point being is that <laughs> They do it too, but it's part of the job. But also that you can be doing somebody a favor in that regard that makes it easier for them to do their job within a soul-sapping you know, corporation uh, because they can't get around the rules, the, the, the program commands. Then, then uh, they, if you lie, then it's a relief. They can, okay, I can actually work with this. We can actually find a way out of this situation. Yeah, actually, that that your experience there demonstrated that quite well. Like you actually had to lie in order for the person trying to help you to be able to help you, right? And and the thing about 
that representative of Amazon is that they have like hours of training to in order to be that representative and they have manuals that they have to follow. Like you can imagine they have a, a manual on their desk, like when X and that manual represents probably thousands of hours of consultants and specialists and researchers and professionals uh, working out how to make this work for so for an Amazon representative to make contact with a disgruntled customer. Well, if you remember how that conversation ended um, with the, with this representative that did finally solve my my problem, um, because I didn't trust her to do it because I'd t- spoken to so many beforehand who'd assured me that this time it was going to work. I well, Michelle actually suggested get ask her name, so I asked her name, which is Sushi. Sushi, yeah, and uh, and I said, "What's your last name?" And she said, "I don't have a last name." And and so I said, "What do you mean you don't have a last name?" Of course, you have a last name. And she she just kept repeating, "I don't have a last name." And I said, "What well, what do you mean like Madonna and Cher? You don't have a last name? Uh, what about a bank account? Have you opened a bank account? Didn't you? Didn't you <laughs> do that, right?" And I kept pushing it and pushing it. And at, at, at one point, I said. You know, you might wonder why I'm pushing this so hard, but you've told me to trust you that you're going to resolve this. And, you know, if you said to me, I can't tell you my last name, I'd accept it. But you're telling me you don't have a last name, which means that you're lying. And if you're lying to me, how can I trust you when you say trust me? And she gradually uh, faded out. It was very strange. She just she didn't hang up, but she just went quieter and quieter and quieter. And uh, at the end of my last harangue wasn't really a harangue I think I was being quite calm uh there was complete silence and I said hello 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 and she just she just completely withdraw I mean I don't know where she went but uh it was it was a very strange experience and um I wonder I think you you happened Somehow you managed to, and even it might maybe the contact with all the previous Amazon employees, you learned, you learned something about their programming so that you were able to really connect with her, like in a human to human way, even though it was fraught. And, and he wasn't awful, Kate. He was, he was being just like, he, he wasn't being abusive or anything, but he was really like determined to get into his Amazon account. Um, somehow you got her to the edge of her programming. So then she didn't know what to do, right? And that was the sign like that she made such an obvious blunder. Well, it, it almost sounded to me, I was gonna ask, is there any chance that this is a bot, you know, that's actually speaking, but I did and, ask her that. You know, I did say, are you human? You are human. But she said but, she was. But, you know, Michelle talks about programming. And so in that sense, is there any difference at a certain point, right? You're speaking to either an AI or an actual human, but a human who has been programmed and who's who has to respond in certain ways, programmed to respond in certain ways, you know, and not as a criticism of them, but that's their role and they're recorded and that's what they're um, hired to do and can be fired for not doing. What was that, Michelle? Yeah, I was just agreeing with you. 
Mm. Yeah, they have to. They have to follow their programming or, or they don't have a job. Yeah, and they may never find another job in this world, right? <laughs> well, this, you can't. this is the question then, are we, is, uh, is humanity now just undergoing programming, vast programming? Definitely. Oh, well, I think we're seeing the, the final result, I would say hundreds or thousands of years of programming i think i'd say humanity i don't like the word as you know i mean humanity is a program i'll put it that way um though i i do see hope so here in in spain where we are um we're in just farming communities these little like everybody lives in the country they live in sort of ramshackle stone houses and they're all engaged in farming they're all like super happy like when you talk to them on the street and I don't because I can't speak Spanish but they're super friendly and they're super happy and they always have big smiles on their faces and you know they're not spending hours in front of a television afraid of the coronavirus they're just not so there's pockets you've left hope and you've found more hope There ends this week's Liminalist podcast conversation. Next time, not next week, because I'm not doing them weekly anymore, uh, will be whenever it is and with whoever I can find to participate in that. If you have any suggestions of women that you'd like to hear conversing with me somewhere in the background on this podcast, don't hesitate to share your thoughts. Yeah.